It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly potpourri edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com digital sports columnist and editor with Rick Roaring. Each week, we look at sports topics locally, nationally. Um, I'm guessing there's some mailbag questions. We'll see on that. I don't oh, know. Oh, you better believe it. We've got some good ones as always, I'm sure. Uh, I know we had some problems on uh, on a platform last week, Rick, with the podcast for some folks. We're sorry for that. But uh, just a reminder, I mean, you can always go to our website at local12.com. You can go to SoundCloud. Um, there's various ways to listen to it. So for those of you that may have had a problem, we apologize. We are in some times where you, you don't know what's working technologically and what isn't, but we're trying to bring this podcast to you each and every week nonetheless. Yeah, exactly right. It was iTunes that I heard people were having trouble downloading it. So please keep giving us feedback. We're trying to sort it out. Uh, so far, we haven't gotten very far with that, but we're hoping we're on uh, on the right track here with this week's episode. So yes, uh, without further ado, we'll jump right into it. On Monday, Major League Baseball owners approved a proposal to return to play that was presented to players on Tuesday during a multi-hour meeting. A few of the notable points included in the plan were an expansion of playoff teams from 10 to 14, an 82-game season, the use of home stadiums in areas that have local and state government approval, a so-called spring training 2.0 that begins in June with a season set for early July, a universal designated hitter, geographical schedules in which teams play only in-division opponents and interleague opponents in a similar area. For example, the uh, National League Central would play the AL Central and – so on um and a 30-man roster with a taxi squad that could have upwards of 50 players available many around the game believe the biggest hurdle will be money owners stand to lose about 40 percent of mlb revenue without fans due to the loss of gate concessions parking ballpark advertising luxury suites and programs the owners agreed in a conference call monday afternoon to a plan that includes a 50 50 revenue split with the players Sources, though, believe the revenue split will be seen as a non-starter for the Players Association, who agreed in late March to a prorated salary structure. Skinny, do you think the sides will come to an agreement on money? And if not, what would an MLB strike this year due to the sport? Uh, if, it, if, it, if they don't play because of money, I, I think you'll have a lot more bitterness than you've ever had. And that includes the strike in 94. There was a lot of resentment and bitterness. Um, obviously there was that faction of fans that said, I'll never go back. And you know that they obviously at some point went back, but, but no doubt baseball took a hit in 94 from, you know, ending the season in August, not having a world series. And, and um, it, it did hurt the sport for a period of time and certainly steroid juice baseball helped bring it back and the home run ball helped bring it back and all of those things. Um, this time around, if this comes down to money and, and I don't care what side you come down to on this, I know some people point to the owners of being, uh, overly greedy that listen players were ready to come back and yet now you're 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 talking money when you've already agreed to something back in March which was the prorated pay of and I'll just use Joey Votto as an example Joey Votto makes 25 million dollars divide that by 162 games and Joey Votto would get paid every game that's played a prorated portion of that 25 mil so they've agreed to that back in March but the parameters have changed I think back in March there was some hope that Maybe we'd have a season by mid-May, and maybe that season in mid-May, Rick, as you recall, would be 162 games played into November, and then, you know, there'd be fans in the stands. Well, the the parameters have changed for everybody, and look, I know it's always easy to pick on the owners for being greedy, and I know it's also easy to point at players and go, well, you guys are being greedy. Listen, this is a tough time, and, uh, you know, you're, you're getting paid a good piece of change. Neither side can win this battle. They need to come to some kind of some kind of gathering together. And I think one of the ways is maybe owners have to open their books and say, listen, here's what we stand to make with no fans in the stands. Here's what we're bringing in. 
we're, we're just literally, we're just doing enough to cover costs of people who work in our front office and people who work in management and people who whatever, you know, just general costs, costs for turning on the lights, um, all of those things. And here's what's left over. And this is what you guys get. Now, I don't think they'll open the books. If they do that, though, then, then maybe you get to some degree. But I mean, th th the thing is, though, this, this can't go on for another three weeks. If you're going to have something starting in June, you better damn well have something in place by the end of next week, probably, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you have basically two weeks to do this, maybe, you know, 15 days, like a half a month, essentially, to get this yeah. done, because it's not going to be a quick process, even after you agree to something, to get it all mobilized and into place for that 4th of July weekend that they're, they're circling as a potential start date. Uh, I, here's my guess. If they can't come to agreement, my guess is they're going to try to make it look like it's more health issues and things like that. Um, but I think the Players Association will strongly push back against that if it really is coming down to money. And right. they will make Major League Baseball ownership look like the bad guys here. And um, I, in some ways, like, it's hard to get around that because, you know, I think a lot of people look at it from a standpoint of, well, they're billionaires. They can afford it. They, you know, figure out a way. And to an extent, like, I, I do agree with that. I can see the, the standpoint of there's got to be some mechanism in place to where, you know, these teams can take on some debt. Maybe they can defer salaries uh, of some of these players that will agree to it, some of the, the top paid players that, you know, don't need the money right now. Uh, there's something they can do to figure this out to where, look, none of these guys are going to be losing their homes or not being able to feed their families in terms of the owners. Um, but at the same time, like, I do think it's a little ridiculous for fans to just expect that owners should have all this liquid cash that they can just shell out right. to their team right. and, and pay for the whole season without making money off of it. So it is more complicated than fans want you to believe. I do tend to side with the players on this stuff, but I really don't see either side coming to an agreement here like the players aren't going to do this mainly because it basically becomes a salary cap yeah and i know that's the argument and that's the right that's the, that's the fair argument and you're not wrong in that argument and so anybody that makes that i i i would agree with what you're saying but i i think that's the fear because the, the the collective bargaining agreement is over after 2021 and and you would think that the ownership would probably push towards a salary cap if they did this maybe but i also think we're in unprecedented times of Listen, let's just work together on this for this year. Get us through this year. You make a little bit of money. We just need to cover expenses, and we all win, and, and America gets baseball back. We're not trying to push for a hard salary cap, and maybe I'm being naive in that regard. Not, uh, I, with I, all due I, respect, I, really, I think you are. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I just don't, I don't think that's the case for this year, though. I think really that's for this been year, such it's, a sticking point for it has so been. many I know years, it. and with the I fact know. that they have a big negotiation coming up next season. I don't see the association relenting on that one. Oh, no, no, I, I agree with you. I don't think they are going to relent. But I also, I, I go back to, if, if we want to make this right, if I'm ownership, I'm just going to say, listen, we're going to open our books. Here's what our expenses are. Here's the revenue coming in. We want to cover these expenses and you guys get the rest, 50-50. I think if they do end up having a strike or, you know, this goes on along the, the arguments about money and, and it delays the potential start and it goes, or we don't have a season at all because right. of that, not because well, of the health, but because of this, that's what I'm saying. Essentially that would, would have been a strike or if, if not, you know, maybe they say, Hey, we're going to start, we're all agreed to something for July 4th. And then because of the money can't be decided upon, it ends up being like August. I think that is going to hurt major league baseball in an extraordinary way. If I agree with you. If they're still the first sport to come back, they'll probably be all right because people are going to be so starved for anything. But if they are not the first sport to return 
or, you know, close to it, at least out of the major sports. I mean, if they don't beat the NFL back into action, man, I, I just – I, I I don't see them recovering from that, to be quite honest. I mean, they'll still exist, but the hit to baseball will be extraordinary in terms of its popularity across our country. I I don't disagree with that. I, th- I think you're right. Now, it should be noted that on Tuesday, uh, when, when the owners presented the first part of the proposal and some of the things that you covered, um, you know, testing and logistical things, they did not put the revenue 50-50 split in place. They They left that part out for now. But Which I is think smart. it is. Yeah, I, I just don't know what the impasse is. Because I, 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 I'm with you. I, don't, I know they're billionaire owners. I get that. And they can probably afford to take a little bit of a hit. But at the same time, if you're just looking to cover expenses and give them the rest, this is just a weird time that you sometimes both sides have to bite the bullet on this. And I think, I, I swear, I, I know everybody thinks that this is pushing towards a salary cap. And yeah, it probably is. But I think in these unique times, Ownership's taking a big hit. You mentioned it. It's about 40% of lost revenue from ticket sales, concessions, luxury suites, those things. Yes, they are pushing for a season because they want that TV money. But if they can't cover costs, why should they go into debt? I mean, honestly, because I, I, they're billionaires? No. I mean, to a certain extent, though, I do think that they are in a situation this time where I don't maybe ruin is, is hyperbole. I, I, maybe that's going too far, but I mean, they are really at l- looking at some drastic problems if they do not have a season this year. Because, I agree with that. Yeah, because they are going to lose a lot of money going forward. They have a young demographic that they already are terrible at getting tuned into the sport. And I think to do something like this at this time, when, every, when you have all the eyeballs waiting on you and everybody's begging you to come back, you're sort of the next hope to get – things sort of back to normalcy and and baseball has had a long tradition of kind of being that sport I mean you think back to the 9-11 stuff how big of a deal it was made that that they were the return to normalcy they have such a golden opportunity here that if the owners miss on this in a lot of ways, it will come back on them. And I know a lot well, of I think fans it'll come back will, on the. I think it'll come back on players, believe it, believe it or not. I think more fans, right or wrong. Fans do blame the, the players. players. I agree. And then usually it's just the players. People think the players, oh, they're millionaires, they're being too greedy. But in this case, I think, I think the owners will take a lot of heat too because we are in this unusual time. And, and the fact that, that they're not willing to take a small hit up front for what could pay huge dividends down the line for this sport overall um, – I think it'd be a huge mistake. Yeah, I'll leave it at this. I, I think I think both sides have to relent a little, and that includes the players. I don't think they're going to be able to do it in that prorated deal they came to on March 26th. I just don't. I don't. I don't think that that's a feasible thing. And I'll I'll use the Reds as an example. I mean, we all think the Reds went out on a ledge this year, right? With with some contract stuff. Um, if they take a huge loss this year, for example, and I'm not here to tell you they will. I'm just saying, for example. Okay, they're on the hook for some pretty big contracts the next few years. What happens then? Can they fill in some pieces, or do they have to say, "No, we got to, we got to have another fire sale"? We did the last year just killed us. No, I mean that's that's exactly right. I mean, they, there are a lot of issues here for the player. I mean, I, I mentioned some of the downside for the owners, but the players are facing. I mean, what happens in free agency next year? What Correct. happens to service time for all these guys? I mean, there is a lot of issues for the players too if they don't have a season. So it's in everyone's best interest to come to terms and and like you said, relent a little bit. But but I, the I clock's ticking fast, boy. You have two weeks basically to do it, and I just don't know that we're going to get that type of maturity and and I, foresight I from these two sides. I hope so, and I, I I think obviously everybody holds out hope, and and maybe at the end of the day. 
uh, when push comes to shove, both sides relent enough to be, make it a win-win for both, and we have a season. But, man, two weeks is a very tight window in negotiations. Well, from one sport to, to another, the NBA believes it will have 22 of its 30 facilities open by Monday. According to sources, participants on a board of governors call on Tuesday with NBA Commissioner Adam Silver left a virtual meeting feeling increasingly positive about the league's momentum toward a resumption of play this season. Discussion centered on health and safety concerns, including the goal of getting team officials and players comfortable with the idea that a positive test for the coronavirus upon a return would not shut down play. The league hasn't worked through the details on whether all 30 teams would return or whether regular season games would be played or if perhaps there would be a play-in tournament to give more teams a chance to make the 16-team playoff field. Skinny, do you think the NBA should plan a return for this season or just move on to preparing for the 2020-21 season at this point? No, I think you can pull this off. Um, I guess the question is how long do, do teams need to be together, players need to work themselves into some level of shape, I think you wind up having some level of expanded rosters maybe, right? And um, instead of a guy playing 40 minutes a night for a while, you literally are using a big bench um, just to get guys almost like an exhibition season for a couple of weeks, even though they're regular season games. I, I, I think they can pull this off. If you, if you can get this thing started, I haven't seen what the target date is. I just know they're opening these facilities, it seems like, pretty quickly, as you mentioned. Um, man, if you could get a season resumed by, could you do June 15th? Well, I mean, I guess it all depends. They haven't, again, they haven't gone far enough down the line to say, right. are we going a, a with date. that little dormitory idea, like the Disney resort, like Adam right. Silver's thrown out there? Or are we going to try to play it in the cities that are opened up and are allowed, which aren't many at this time? I think Arizona no, right. was the first one yesterday. Yeah, they um, were. You know, so maybe mid-June you'll have 20 states, 25 states. You'll have half of them opened up maybe. So I, I think those are kind of the questions you get into that they are, they're not – that far along yet they're still sort of centered on the health portion of this which should be the most important and I I know Adam Silver said that it was a non-starter if one player got the coronavirus and they had to quit play at that point then it was a non-starter to really get going again he's not the case yeah the only thing I'd say to that too is and that's where I think everybody has to not freak out if one person gets it and maybe you test the rest of the team the organization and nobody else has it it's like and again, I'm not trying to diminish COVID-19, so don't, hopefully nobody takes it that way. But it's like if one of your players gets the flu, do you shut down your team for a week because that guy got the flu? I think you test everybody. And look, if you get one guy who's got it and then five others who have symptoms of it, then okay, then we got some problems. But I don't think you can freak out over one positive test. And I know you're not suggesting that, but I, I think that's where these leagues have to go with this, that yeah, probably somebody's going to get it. But if if it's not spreading and it's not, you know, multiple people, then let's, let's play on here. Right. And that's what Adam Silver was saying is just that he wanted to be reassured from the health experts that that was an okay thing to do. You know, meaning like if someone gets this, can we keep going after that and, and with testing and, and so forth? And, and what does that look like? And, and then you get into the question of like, how many is too many, you know, because obviously you're going to need some replacement players. Then if you're having players drop like flies on certain teams, um, I come down to, I know it's a different situation. We're comparing apples to oranges here, but like, I, I don't know the science around how fast the testing is at this point. I saw yeah, there's not yeah, rapid response, like it's not instant. Um, but Joe Rogan is doing a podcast, like three, four podcasts a week where he's flying someone into the studio, getting them tested before they go on. And then they do a podcast together and he's very anal about this stuff and he's still getting that done. I have to imagine the major pro sports leagues can figure out a way to test everybody that's involved. If there aren't going to be fans there, I would assume very limited to no media. 
yeah, I think they'll be able to figure out a way to get this going. Um, and I would assume with the NBA, the situation that they're in where the playoffs are viewed so much more than the regular season are that they, they almost have to figure out a way to get the playoffs on television somehow. Yeah, and I would say this. I'm not even sure how much more regular season you need, to be honest. A couple of weeks no, maybe, I, again, to get guys into shape. And, I, and the reason I say that is, Rick, you'd have some seeding issues, but I was just looking at the standings, and I haven't looked in a while. In the, in the East, for example, the eighth-place team is the Magic. They have a five-and-a-half game lead over the ninth-place team, the Wizards. I, I don't think two months is going to change that, right? And in the West, the eighth-place team is the Grizzlies, and they have a three-and-a-half game lead over the ninth-place team, Portland. Give them a couple of weeks to try to make up the ground. And if you can't, let's just go with the eight teams in each conference that are, that are in the playoffs at that point. Yeah, or, I mean, I don't even mind the idea of, of going to, like, a slightly expanded field, giving a couple extra teams, you know, a, a play-in game or a play-in series, okay. uh, three-game series Maybe. or something to, for the last couple teams, you know, expand the field just a little bit. I'd be fine with that. Uh, but I, I think – I think they are going to figure out a way, and I think it'll work. It's weird how things seem to work so much smoother for the NBA when they have to deal with negotiations and, and things like that. I mean, it, they come away saying, oh, it sounds like uh, we're moving towards a, a startup and, and, and we've got positive momentum. And you go to the baseball side of things, the NFL side of things, and it just sounds like everybody's going to be fighting over this. Right, right. No, the, the NBA, it seems like everybody's on the same page pushing forward with this. Yeah, and I mean, everyone's pretty much, the, the discussions are all centered around health first, and, and they're kind of getting that all sorted out. And then, you know, after that, I'm sure they'll have other concerns. But I guess the money thing for them is, in some ways, either more complicated or more straightforward in the sense that they've played most of their season already. Right. I mean, they played, what, 60 games, 64? 64-ish games, something right. like that. Right, so, so I don't yeah. even know that they prorate guys' salaries in that case if they end up having the playoffs, right? I mean, you kind of do, like you said, a little preseason-ish type exhibition a couple weeks with expanded rosters to get everyone going again, and then you jump into the postseason? Yeah, I think that's exactly what you do. All right. ESPN announced over the weekend that it has moved on from Joe Tessitore and Booger McFarland as its Monday night football broadcasting booth. Reports suggest that with revenue declining, ESPN and Disney are asking top on-air talents and executives to take pay cuts, which has made hiring from within a priority. According to Bavada, the two favorites at plus 225 are Lewis Riddick and Dan Orlovsky. Pat McAfee and Steve Levy are next at plus 300, followed by Kurt Warner at plus 550 and Peyton Manning at plus 650. Skinny, who do you think should make up Monday Night Football's new broadcast booth? I think Dan Orlovsky would be fascinating. I, I, now, he may come off as a little too, um, oh, I don't know, confrontational, because he does he's, – he's very confrontational on, on talk shows, not in a negative – not in a way of shouting confrontation. I think he's actually really, really smart in what he says. Um, he just has no problem saying someone's bad or they yes, don't know what they're doing. Yes. Or, yeah. And, and I, I wonder if that would fit in that NFL – I mean, John Gruden, when he did it, he thought every player was great, right? I mean, I'm yeah. not sure he saw a player that he thought was not, not any good. Um, I think that'd be refreshing for fans, though. I do. I think um, fans would love a more critical voice at the color position. Yeah, the, the, the thing is, are they going to wind up with a three-man booth or not? And I just – I think it always comes to me of too overcrowding. It, it's, it's so funny. I was watching – and you're going to laugh at me for this because I'm just an old man. I was flipping through uh, TV on Tuesday night and came upon MLB Network, and they were replaying the live broadcast of Don Larson's perfect game in the, in the 1956 World Series, which, believe it or not, the play-by-play announcer was, was Mel Allen and, and Vin Scully, who just retired, what, two years ago. It's amazing to think Vin Scully was calling that game. 
it was a one-man scenario. Mel Allen did part of the game, then Vin Scully did the rest, and it was very minimal conversation, and I thought, huh, that's actually pretty good. I mean, I think some of it is we get so many voices in the booth, and then you got Susie on the sideline who's not giving you anything. Hey, I just heard the quarterback say that we've got to play better. Back to you guys. Oh, thanks for that insight. That was outstanding. Appreciate it. Um, I feel for Joe Tessitore because I thought he was a pretty solid play-by-play guy. Um, I just think he got dragged down by Booger McFarland's stupidity a lot of times. I mean, Booger McFarland has to be one of the worst additions to a big-time booth like that that we've ever seen. I mean, whether it be like Fox or CBS as number one or the Monday Night Football or Thursday Night Football primetime booths, he was absolutely horrendous. Yeah, I thought Joe Tessitore was fine. I think he's got a good yeah. voice. I think he's got a good yeah. delivery. He's got good – I mean, he's – But he's not going to save a broadcast. No, and, but, but I, don't, I don't think you'd ever think a play – The only play-by-play no, play guy play I can think of is Al, Mike, Al Michaels can do it. I mean, yeah. Al Michaels can honestly, I think, do a game by himself. Yeah, I, they'd I really have to be that. bigger than the game. I mean, so there's a few guys that sort of have that big – you know, like Gus Johnson, some people like him, some people hate him, but he has a big enough shtick and personality to where – you could side with him over a bad color guy. He does. And, and the thing about him, though, that I'll give him credit for, while some of that shtick bothers me, but I know that fans love it, is he's pretty good at letting the color guy on a TV broadcast carry the show. Because really, that's what t- TV is mostly the play by play guy getting the hell out of the road and letting the color guy say something intelligent about what's going on. And a lot of times you don't Agreed. have that. You got ex players who just mumble through it and, and tell you Phil Sims is the, the king of, here's, watch this. He goes around left end and gets tackled and falls to the ground. And then he's on the ground. Jim? Oh, okay, great. Appreciate that. Thanks, Phil. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Tony Romo, a name that came up a lot, he already agreed to a contract with CBS, so he's not in the running yeah. for this, people. And he's very good. Yeah, he's, he's great. Um, it, you know, they, they've supposedly, like the Peyton Manning thing and Kurt Warner thing are interesting, but going outside right now when you're telling your other top talents to take a pay cut and then signing one of those two guys to some ungodly amount of money right. as outsiders – isn't going to look good. Now, I'm not ruling them out entirely, but it doesn't seem like it's very likely. Um, you liked Lewis Riddick a lot when we were talking about the draft, when I was kind I of do. ripping I... on him for his draft coverage, but I, it seemed like a lot of people are really high on him for getting this job, and, and he's listed as uh, one of the favorites along with Orlovsky. Yeah, if, if you went to the three-man thing, he and Orlovsky together I think would be pretty good. I, I really I, – I do think that. I, that one wouldn't bother me that, that much. I, I like Lewis Riddick. I think he's really, really good. I, I don't know, though, again, it's, it's a lot different doing um, – a question and answer talk show than it is analyzing the play on the field in a quick, concise way. And I don't know how much experience either Dan Orlovsky or he have at that, if any. The thing that, that I always find funny, though, is, is for the most part, what are fans? Are fans tuning in to watch Joe Tessitore and Booger McFarland? Or are they watching the game? Are you tuning in for the game? Yeah, so my opinion on all this is, has basically become that you should be trying to put together a good podcast for your broadcast booth like that's that's what your goal should be is basically sort of a talk show to go along with the game i think it's it it doesn't mean it like it can be pretty analytical and more focused on the game or it can kind of be like the bill walton route where you're just entertaining and and kind of like a a side distraction from the game but But i don't smoke and peyote before every broadcast is a good idea man no i wouldn't probably recommend it for monday night football um but my point is that you really, they really don't mean much to the broad, you know, to the, to the actual game that's going on. So I'm totally but if they're fine. bad, But if they're bad, they take away from it. That's the only thing. If they're bad. If they're bad. And that's why I'm saying you've got to basically have like a good podcast. That's what I want. I don't need like the guys just giving me the constant uh, cliche 
football sayings over and over. And I, so the, the interesting name here is Pat McAfee. And he is stick out the wazoo. I mean, that's who he genuinely is, but he is totally over the top. He's goofy. He's silly. He got to call some college football games as a color guy last year for ESPN. So that's why he's sort of an insider. They could hire within with him. Um, He's listed as a favorite. His name has been reported around. He swears on his radio show that he's trying to get the job and ESPN is basically telling him no chance. Um, what do you think about adding a guy like that who has sort of that larger-than-life personality and stick to him? Yeah, I, I just think that comes off as a clown show. I don't need a clown show. I need a, I need the, I need a mixture of in-between clown show and, and, and the guy who's going to be complete X's and O's. I need, some, I need a little bit of both. I don't need a complete clown show, and I think McAfee would be a clown show. I, I you know I go back and forth on him because sometimes he's a little too over the top. He he does sound like just like a wrestling uh, hype guy. Um, but then some of the the college games I heard him do last year. I mean, the guy played for Super Bowl teams in the NFL. I mean, granted he was a kicker and punter, but punter, right? But he under like he understands what's going on out there for the oh, no part. he knows what I he's mean, talking hey, about. I, so. I will say this. I mean, he 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 was a tackling machine, believe it or not, as a as a, yeah, as a punter kicker. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was kind of his calling card. It seems like Steve Levy it, it looks to be the odds-on favorite at the play-by-play guy because he's the only play-by-play guy listed as Bruce the favorite. Listed. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I didn't see any others in sight, really, even in the early long shots here. So um, I, I would assume it sounds like we're getting Steve Levy as a play-by-play guy, which is fine. I mean, he's harmless. He's kind of he, – he's a likable guy. I don't think anyone has problems I, with I, Steve I, Levy. I don't, I don't have problems. I just think of hockey when I think of Steve Levy. Me too. That's all I think of. Yeah, I mean that's exactly what I think of too. Is a hockey guy. He's, it's okay, kind of kind of funny, but uh, decent personality. But anyway, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with here for the new booth because that that booth they had last year was the worst. I mean, even worse than the Dennis Miller booth, in my opinion. The Dennis Miller booth was bad. It was, but not as bad as Booger McFarland. Good point. All right. Skinny, the Bengals currently have no quarterback on the roster who has ever won an NFL regular season start, and only one who has even taken a snap in a regular season game. And that's apparently how the team will proceed heading into the 2020 season. Bengals head coach Zach Taylor was asked during a Zoom interview with area media on Friday if the team was going to sign a veteran to serve as a backup to number one draft choice Joe Burrow and give him some NFL leadership to lean upon and said that it isn't in the plans. Quote, we're set, said Taylor. We've got three young guys we really look forward to investing a lot of reps in. We think they have bright futures. We feel really good about where we're at right now. Skinny, do you think the Bengals are making the right choice by not pursuing a veteran quarterback? I don't, I, I get it, but I don't. Um, I, and it's not a matter of if, well, it is to some degree a matter of if Joe Burrow got hurt, I, I don't have much faith in, in Ryan Finley. And I just haven't seen enough of Jake Dolagala because he's never taken a, a regular season snap. I, but is that I what like this it. season is even about though? No, like, no, no, no. And, and that's, what, that's what I was going to say. That's why I, there's a part of me that gets this, that listen, you're, you're trying to build around Joe Burrow A. That's the bottom line. And you liked enough of Ryan Finley to trade up for him to start him some games last year. And I thought he was another disaster. And I don't think I trust him to be a starting quarterback at any point of his NFL career. And I, I don't know what I've gotten Jake Dolagala, but this is, I think, and you've said this before too, even with the offensive line, this is kind of a, let's find out what we've got here. Okay. We've plugged some, some holes. We've got some holes that we know. Um, we've got some holes that we know, but we, we hope we have some answers too. So let's find out from some of this. And maybe that's what you're doing at the quarterback position. The only thing for me is I, I do think it would be beneficial for Joe Burrow when he comes off the field to have somebody other than a coach to go to and go, man, I, I saw this and this and this. What, what, what are you seeing? And look, I know people can go, well, that's a coach's responsibility. And it is. But I also think it helps to have a peer 
that's been through the fire in a game and been through it maybe multiple times that can kind of help you through the situation. I think that part would be beneficial. But from a, from a boy, if Joe Burrow got hurt standpoint, could the Bengals win a game without a veteran backup quarterback? I really don't care. If Joe Burrow gets hurt, then I'm, it's going to suck anyway. So what difference does it make? Um, that's the only part for me. So I, I get both parts of it. I get the fact of it probably would be beneficial to have the veteran, but I also understand, listen, okay, we're going to ride with these three guys and see what we got because this is a let's see what we got kind of year. I think this is kind of an ego play here by Zach Taylor and his coaching staff. He's putting a lot of belief, a lot of faith in the fact that they're going to steer Joe Burrow in the right path and, and what they're going to do will work almost no matter what. And I think basically what they're saying here is we don't want any old guy who, you know, maybe have certain preconceived notions, maybe bitter about a certain style of play, maybe bitter about the way he was forced out, whatever, you know, the names that have been brought out, Joe Flacco, Alex Smith, some of those guys. I mean, there are legit names out there that I think could help you as a backup, could maybe even be a starter still in this league. It would certainly have some insight to offer him. But I think what Zach Taylor and his staff are doing here, they seem big on culture. They seem big on, on and getting everybody bought in on what they're doing. I think they don't want an outside voice telling these young guys, you know, what, what the right way to do thing is or whatever. They, they want them to listen to what their message is. At that's least good, that's, that's the way point. I perceive it. And no, that's good. I, well, I think the other thing too is let's not forget. I mean, Ryan Finley was taken last year. I, I mean, it, are you giving up on him that quickly? I mean, I think I would. I don't think much. I've, you know me. I, since, since I saw him in rookie minicamp, I didn't think a whole lot of the kid. Um, but obviously, that's also a quick admission of, of you know, we don't think much of this guy. The other part is, this is year two of a four-year rookie contract for Ryan Finley. So he's under very much a cost control. Bringing a veteran in, while it's not going to cost you $8, 10000000 million, it's going to cost you at least a little chunk of change. Do you really want to do that for a guy that you don't want to play anyway? Yeah, and I don't think – and the, the, the cost thing is is a relevant point. I don't think the whole Ryan Finley thing matters because you're not bringing in a veteran because he's competing for Ryan Finley's future. You know what I mean? You're bringing in a veteran to, to – help be, To help Joe Burrow. Right, exactly, to be a mentor to Joe Burrow. So whether he's your second string, third string, emergency, whatever, it doesn't matter. He could be your punter. If he played quarterback in the past and, and had success, that's why you're bringing him in is to mentor Joe Burrow. But I – I think that it's somewhat of an ego play. It's somewhat just putting the faith in. We want our message to be the only message to our young quarterback, our fran- the future of our franchise. And we've got a young quarterback room, and they're all going to have the same message. Um, and at the same time, it's also looking and saying, hell, if we lose Joe Burrow this year, who cares? Because we're not going to win either way. So um, I think that's a lot of what's going on here. And I'm fine with the decision overall. But at the same time, like, you know, if, if Joe Burrow struggles early, I think there are going to be some people looking around like, eh. Might help to have a veteran put an arm around him, you know, or be able to take him out in the fourth quarter if he's been sacked 17 times and thrown three interceptions in, a, in an early game or something. Yeah, because the, the only thing for, for that veteran is, I, if, again, if it's the right guy, and I don't know if Joe Flacco is the right guy. I don't think he is. I don't think he's got much left in the tank. I don't think Alex Smith is. I mean, my God, I can't believe the guy. Did you watch the E60, by the way, on him? I did it not. Was, it I was watched the Twitter video of him working out with oh. his wife the other day. Oh, yeah, the wife's pretty solid. He looks to be in good shape. Uh, But, man, the the shots of that leg. Oh, my heavens, the Betsy. It was brutal. But, anyway, um, yeah, I think think the only thing for, like, a Ryan Finley is, as a a young guy, what do you want to play? I mean, is there a part of him that's that's going, man, I I, I can't wait for something to happen. I I need to play. I want to play. That's my only fear there. And, And competition isn't a bad thing. But, listen, Joe Burrow is your quarterback for the next four years, come hell or high water. So, what are we doing here? 
Yeah. I, I mean, I think Ryan Finley probably understands that too. And he's just looking for an opportunity to better himself because what he put on tape last year isn't going to get him not anywhere. Right, right. Right. So he's just going to try to get himself better behind Joe Burrow. And if that opportunity presents itself, at least, again, at least he's a young guy with maybe some upside still, but I'm with you. I don't, I mean, I don't think much of Ryan Finley now or in the future. So that's not really on my radar. Take, yeah. I think the most interesting takeaway is, is yours of, now you've got two guys that were rookies last year that heard your message. You got a rookie this year that's hearing your message. And those guys who are now second year guys heard your message. So it's now one voice. It's our voice that you guys have heard. That's a, it's a good takeaway. Now I think that's a lot of what this is about is they just don't, they, they seem so big on that culture and buy-in that I think they don't want a, an, a voice that has been elsewhere coming in and saying, uh, yeah, I know coach told you this way, but I, I had success doing this, you know? No, so. I, I mean, if you can imagine that if you're Joe Flacco and again, I, it's funny. I saw some national media said that Cincinnati is a perfect landing spot. Again, did you not read the quote? We're set. I'm not sure how much more plain that, that Zach Taylor could be of we're set. Uh, but I love national media still throwing stuff out there like that, that, that Flacco would be the guy, but you're right. I mean, Flacco could easily, if he comes in there going, man, when we won a Super Bowl, we did it the exact opposite the way these clowns are doing it. Well, I mean, I don't hell, he's older than kind of guy. Right, correct. Yeah, right. No, that's a good point. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the, that's the other thing about bringing in these veterans who are older than your head coach. It's like, I mean, that's, <laughs> there's a tendency for that type of thing to happen. Like, I get where Zach Taylor's coming from if that's indeed why he's doing this. And, and whether that's his reasoning or not, I have to imagine, even in the back of his mind, it has, it, it, you know, subconsciously it has something to do with it. Sure. Skinny, the NCAA Division I Men's Basketball Committee announced that beginning with the 2020-21 season, the NCAA evaluation tool, the net as we know it, will be changed to increase accuracy and simplify it by reducing a five-component metric to just two. The remaining factors include the team value index, which is a result-based feature that rewards teams for beating quality opponents, so think of it similar to like the RPI, uh, particularly away from home, as well as an adjusted net efficiency rating, which is sort of like Ken Palm. No longer will the net use winning percentage, adjusted winning percentage, and scoring margin. What do you think of the NCAA's changes to the net? Stop making changes. Stop. Every year there's a change. Just come up, settle on something, and let's go with it for five years, ten years, whatever. Well, well, here's my question. How is the net value, how's the value index compiled? Can you help me with that? Can you give me the formula for that? Well, the one thing that I did find very interesting, um, Andy Katz did an interview with Dan Gavitt that was on the NCAA's website with their release about this. And Dan Gavitt brought up the point that in the past they had, had taken the um, efficiency ratings, which is basically like points per possession, right? I mean, it's the, the yes, whole Ken Palm yeah. thing. It's points per possession. But they hadn't weighted it for the strength of, of schedule. So like meaning your efficiency against – Teams in the MEAC meant the same as your efficiency against teams in the SEC or the Big right, Ten. Which or is Big crazy, East, which is which crazy. Is, yeah. Now, now, there were other, some of these other metrics that they had in place that they were previously using were designed to, to counteract some of that, I think. And what they've tried to do now is simplify this more to make it more like Ken Palm, which is, which is what Ken Palm is. It's weighted for your opponent, your strength of schedule, all of that is factored in. Um, we don't have the exact formula, but I did find that interesting that they hadn't done that the past two years. I don't know if that was out there or if that was something that he just made public for the first time. Cause they've never given us right, the no, right. formula they're using. Um, but yeah, I mean, to me that look, they, they, when they brought this out two years ago, they've now used it for two years, the net. When they brought this out two years ago, they said, we're going to evaluate it and make changes. And, and they, they took the, the information after two years. 
I think they saw this is pretty good, but we've had some outliers, which I think you'll agree with. We've looked at it midway through the year a couple of times and said, now why the hell is so-and-so right. ranked fourth in the nation or something or 13th in, in the nation? In, 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 in net, yeah. Right. And, and so, you know, I think that, that it's good that they took the information they had, they evaluated it, and they said – we've seen some irregularities. Let's, let's fix those. And, and basically it seems like they're moving closer to Ken Palm, but also trying to keep it. The one thing about Ken Palm that's bad is it just doesn't really value wins and losses. It just values your efficiency in each game. And if you're playing basically the way it thinks you should statistically, but it doesn't really value whether you're, you're winning those games or not. And, well, why, and do why don't, or why don't they just say, listen, we have a bunch of different metric tools we use. And at the end of the day, it's still subjective who we think should be in this tournament. Well, and that's and true. You guys, you guys better live with that. That's true. That's true too. But the, but the, and and that is what they do. But the net is used for those team sheets that every right. point to but at the end of the year. If you want to do that metrically, and I'm not opposed to look, I love Ken Palm, um, and hopefully this is a good system. Then honestly, let's just go right down the list of of whatever metric you're using and go, whatever teams are not the champions, right down the list is how we're gonna how we're gonna pick this field. As opposed, to, but that's not how it's done. It's it's still a subjective based thing. Just tell us that. I'm good with that. Well, and, and I think they do tell us that. I mean, no one's saying the selection committee is going strictly off of net. It's still subjective after that without question because, I mean, we've had all these arguments the past two years with who gets in, who doesn't on the bubble. But I do think what you have to figure out how you come up with that team sheet number, you know, who's wins against top 50. Okay, well, how do you decide who's in the top 50? Because that stat isn't going away. We're always going to need something that's easy to sort for fans to look at because that's part of the fun of all this stuff, the bracketology at the end of the year, saying my team's two and four against quad one and, and two and five against quad two and all that stuff. Now, how you separate those quadrants and stuff, that can be changed a little bit. But there's always going to be some type of metric like that in place, and you have to figure out how you sort that metric. And, and right now they're using the net, which – to me, I, I think they're trying to make it closer to Ken Palm, basically, while still valuing whether you're winning the games or not. That's what it seems like to me with this simplification. I'm actually in favor of it. I, I know the NCAA gets crushed for a lot of things that they do. To me, this shouldn't be one of them. I think they're doing yeah, the right I, thing. I guess I would have liked to have seen how this year's tournament would have played out based on the selection process. And really, still, at, at the end of the day, the last six to eight teams is how this always affects, right? Who gets yep. on the, 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 the bubble teams? And you know what? They still don't matter. They really don't. I mean, it's great you get in, but at the end, but when you're deciding a champion, they rarely, 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 if ever, matter. Right. And Dan Gavitt clearly said, by the way, to your point about not going down the line, he clearly said, your your team's actual net rating isn't what matters. Like we're not looking at this team is ranked thirty fourth on the net, so they'll be in before this team. It but I think that's the danger of yeah. But that's the danger of doing that though, because I think as a fan, you go, well, wait a minute, my team's rated there on your rating system. Why are they not in, or why are they not seated accordingly? Right, and I think there is a misunderstanding of that. The net is used to sort those team sheets, and it's really you want to know what your opponents were ranked in the net because that makes up your resume, right? Like at the end of the day, your net's going to be higher if you win a lot of those games either right. way. So right. I mean, it kind of works itself out, but it's more about you know sorting the teams you played and finding out how you did against them so i'm for it i mean we could go round and round on that but it is uh it, to me it's good that they're continuing to evaluate and try to use the best information they had as opposed to you know sticking to something like the bcs which was clearly outdated for years and years and, and they knew that yeah i, I just I, I mean if this makes it more concise um and more consistent than i am for that so i guess i have to see it play out all right Lawyers representing Zion Williamson's former agent, Gina Ford, filed a document in Miami-Dade Circuit Court last week requesting him to answer several questions that could have serious implications regarding his eligibility at Duke in 2018-19. 
The document asks Williamson to admit he knew his family received payments and or other benefits before and during his attendance at Duke University, for it also alleges she wired $100,000 to Williamson's stepfather. Skin, do you think Duke should be worried about Zion Williamson's legal battles? I don't think they should be worried. The only thing I can think of is if he took improper benefits, not through Duke, but through somebody else and was technically a professional playing at Duke, could that strip them of wins or whatever? And we've talked about this really, does that even matter anymore? Yeah, I, no, I, I don't win think it that year anyway. Who cares? Yeah. Right. They somehow I, yeah, blew I, that. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good point. Um, yeah. I don't think Duke should be worried in, in, in this. Um, but I do, I mean, I, I think they could lose wins just because in theory, if he took improper benefits and it can be proven, then technically he was not eligible by NCAA standards. Now Duke said they vetted all that. They felt good about that, um, et cetera. I know the funny part is when you see Duke attached to this, everybody's first conclusion is, Oh, Duke's dirty. Well, Duke probably is dirty, but that really there's apples and oranges here where that that's concerned. So yeah, I don't, I don't think they have anything to worry about here. It, it, it was alarming when you first heard it on Sunday, but then you're like, well, wait a minute, this is more that, that agency versus Zion and vice versa, as opposed to Duke. Duke's just kind of the, the, the interested third party in all of this. It is, but I mean, this is all the same type of stuff that we've been, you know, the, the documentary that we saw on HBO, the, all the stuff that we've been talking about for the last two years with these uh, investigations, the FBI, these people being indicted, it's all this type of stuff, right? I mean, agents and runners and people doing favors and gearing a t kid towards a certain school so then they can capitalize on him when they sign with the agent later. So, like, I mean, there are allegations that basically these types of people pushed him towards duke and pushed him towards nike and all nike, that stuff yeah. so yeah. so i mean and and like you said i mean duke says that they've already vetted all this uh, when the, there were allegations made uh what last year when the avenatti mike avenatti yeah, right, was uh, right. spouting his mouth and he ended up getting uh, sued by nike so I, I don't you know to me it does seem like if there's this much smoke um the the landscape of college basketball as we know it is clearly filled with this type of stuff. And if there's this much smoke, it wouldn't be a surprise if uh, maybe the biggest icon we've seen in prep sports in the last decade got paid off. I mean, in some form or fashion or his family capitalized on, on that stardom, it wouldn't be a surprise at all. The weird thing is, and I think the thing that fans want here, and this is really the sort of at the crux of this question is fans want, when Louisville's getting pounded and it looks like maybe Kansas is about to get nailed here. They want Duke to be called out on this. Correct. Finally, because I think everyone agrees that stuff has happened at Duke. There was the Marvin Bagley, you know, even Corey Maggette back in the day. Like there have been things in the past that have happened with Duke that people seem to acknowledge eh, something's going on there, but they never really seem to get nailed or, or called out by the NCAA or there's no infractions there. So I mean, do you think there's any possibility that, that Duke actually gets a little bit of a black eye from some of this? I, I don't. And look, I get it. I mean, the Corey Maggette thing, they should have absolutely gotten dinged for that. <laughs> um, but th this one, you can't tie it directly to Duke in any way, shape or form. Now, if you could do that, then maybe. But, um, you know, like I said, they're kind of the outlier bystander in all of this. They really and truly are. Now, I'm, again, I'm not trying to be naive and tell you Duke is pure. And look, they all we've all taught. I mean, they're all cheap, man. Duke included. Duke's finding ways around things. You just you don't you don't keep getting players like they get without doing things and cutting corners. You just don't. But in this regard, I just I just don't think they have anything to worry about unless you can come back and directly tie it to to somebody in the in the system. Yeah, and I think the 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 reason Duke is probably in a good spot here, anyways, is, is that 
basically the agent wants to prove that Zion Williamson wasn't an amateur while he was at Duke. Right. So that their contract was legal because Zion is suing her saying that she, what she did was basically predatory in nature when she tried to sign him up while he was in college. And, um, you know, he was still a, a, an amateur and all this stuff. There are laws in North Carolina that prohibit this type of thing. So um, I don't think that he has any incentive to rat Duke out here because he wants to be viewed as an amateur in the, the court size as well. And look, his lawyers are going to fight this for months oh, and months and months. For, it's going to play out yeah. for over a year in court. No so question. By right. the time we get back around to this, I mean, it'll pop back up on social media at some point. But, yeah, I, I just don't think that this is really going to come back on Duke in any nope. way, shape, or form. There will probably be some out-of-court settlement that will make it go away in two years. Yeah, and, and honestly, like, it'd probably be – if there really was something that was going to come out about Duke and, and them uh, impermissible, impermissible benefits that would have geared him towards Duke, it would probably be in the best interest of one of their boosters to just pay this the whole thing to go away anyway. Right. and. You know, I mean, like, because all they made off of Zion, it's like it, it, to keep that sort of flawless reputation going, I, I wouldn't put that past them at all. Yeah, no, that's a good point. ESPN's documentary miniseries on the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls' The Last Dance continued its solid string of ratings. Sunday's episode 7 and 8 averaged 5.1 million viewers across ESPN and ESPN2 from 9 to 11 p.m. The episode focused on the murder of Jordan's father, James Jordan Sr., his retirement from basketball to briefly pursue a career in professional baseball, and the conspiracy theories surrounding the death of his father and that first retirement. It also included a look at the Jordanless Bulls led by Scottie Pippen, as well as Jordan's return to the team and the 72-10 and 10 season in 1995-96. Skinny, what were your takeaways from episode 7 and 8 of The Last Dance? It, it just didn't break a lot of new ground for me. It just didn't. That, that's, I mean, I guess now it's gotten to the point of, of I don't know, there's just, it feels like all I'm doing is watching old highlights of what I remember watching anyway. And, and I, I thought they quickly glossed over the gambling stuff, and I get it. I, I think you and I talked last week that that was probably going to happen. Um, I was surprised, I, though, that they went into the conspiracy theories about the gambling having to do with his dad's death and that they actually directly asked him about that stuff and got quotes on it. Cause I, I thought he would kind because of, I think he wanted to refute that on the record. Like that. I, I really do. I, I think, I think was, you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. But I, I thought that would be something they kind of glossed over more than they did, honestly. And I mean, we know this thing is going to be washed in Jordan's favor because he's no it, question. Um, I guess that's the only part for me. I mean, the, the the stuff with George Carl was kind of interesting, and, and I like George Carl the next day came out and, and said why he didn't go say hi to Michael. It was almost like he was afraid of Michael. Um, I, I thought him laughing about Gary Payton saying he'd be able to stop him I thought was pretty good. <laughs> and, and, and and the anger towards LeBradford Smith was, was pretty funny when he hung 37 on him. I don't remember LeBradford Smith hanging 37 on anybody, so good for him. And, uh, yeah, and LeBradford you know, Smith he, saying, he's a local I guy. Didn't you know, he's a local guy, right? Yeah, Fort Thomas guy. Fort Thomas, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love that LeBradford Smith saying, no, I didn't say anything of that nature right. at all. I, I said, I got lucky, and sometimes my shots go in. I think Michael was paying attention to other people guarding other guys. I got lucky, basically. Like, those were like his direct quotes after the game were like, I got lucky. I, sometimes shots go in for me. I can't miss right. them all. And no, I, uh, Mike I, I, made that out to be an insult. Yeah, it just it seems like each week we're getting to the point of Michael's hyper competitive, blah blah. Okay, I knew that. Get, I, and again, I love looking back at the old footage. So it's still I've watched all eight. I fell asleep the one night with twenty three minutes to go, and and have watched it since, and didn't feel like I missed anything really. Um, so again, it's been fun to watch, but it hasn't been like this earth shattering thing to me. It just there's been a few nuggets that are kind of cool, but nothing earth shattering at this point. 
Yeah, and I think we knew that going, you know, by episode three or four, we had kind of talked about the fact that we're just not going to get that type of stuff out of this documentary, especially given how it came about and that it was his people doing right. it. Um, but I, I will say, I think the last two weeks were my favorite two weeks. I think they were much better than the first two weekends of it. Um, the, the last week getting into some of the brand stuff, I wish they would have gone farther into that, the shoe deal stuff, because that's really some of the most fascinating uh, parts of the Michael Jordan story, in my opinion. And then this week, I thought, you know, the fact that they did get into some of the conspiracy theories around his father's death, got him to actually talk about that stuff on record with decent quotes. Um, and I thought, really, again, that the best part of this whole thing is watching Michael Jordan truly just rip on his teammates and, and Jerry Krause and all the, showing his true personality of what an absolute jerk he really is to people is just absolutely hilarious. I mean, him telling Scott, calling Scott Burrell a, a bitch and a hoe every yes. other oh my gosh. trip down the court is just absolutely stunning to watch. And it's like, I love all the, the new players that are like, oh, it wouldn't happen to me. I'd have to swing on MJ if he talked to me like that. I'm like, my guess is most grown men that make it to the NBA feel that way until they met Michael Jordan. Like, right. my guess is Michael Jordan uh, scared them a little bit. You know, a guy like Scott Burrell, who was a, a decent a decent and nice dude by all accounts, even if he liked to party. So um, I thought some of that stuff was uh, interesting. And it makes sense now why Jordan said, oh, I think people are going to see me as being kind of a jerk after they watch this or think I'm a bad guy. At first I thought, oh, that's hyperbole. He's, he just thinks he has this pristine reputation that he doesn't have. I will say this last episode kind of showed even a, a more dark side of Jordan and, and got him crying at the end of that episode seven, where he's basically saying Cut. like, yeah, yeah, it's like, if you don't want to play that way, then don't play that way. And he's crying. Yeah, he and, wa I thought he wanted to say something more, uh, more direct than that. And he, he kind of cleaned himself up uh, yeah, I think when, so. when, he, when he, when he, when he said that, that's the part for me that I don't mind. I don't mind the hyper competitiveness. I, I've coached kids like Scott Burrell, who you're like, damn, man, you're really good. You just don't have a motor, bro. Get a motor. And then sometimes it's up to getting a teammate to goad that guy along because you can see it. I think that's what he tried to do with a lot of those guys. Of I see your talent. I see how you can help us. But, man, you don't, you're not even – because everybody thinks they play hard, right? Everybody thinks they go as hard as you should go. And there's still always that little percentage in there that you don't get to. And for some guys, it's a bigger percentage. So that – it's funny. That's the part that, to me that I'm like, I don't think he's a – I mean, as a person, yes, but as a competitor or an athlete, that's just real. I, I got no problem with any of that stuff. Yeah, I think for a lot of, a lot of people, um, they genuinely can't get to the place that Michael Jordan can get to competitively. You know, so they are playing – as hard as they can or focusing as, they as much think as they, they can. can. Yes. Yeah. And when for them, I think, I think there are different, like we always say with scouting high school players that motor or, or how hard you play is a skill. Like some guys are just able to play harder for longer than other guys are. It's not the fact that they have, you know, like some, that they just care more than the other guys. It's the fact that they genuinely just have a certain toughness about them or a mental makeup that allows them to go to a place that the other guys can't go to. And, and clearly MJ just never understood that he was never going to be able to understand why other guys couldn't be like him. He's, he's not normal. You know, I mean, he is a sociopath essentially. And yeah, uh, no, that's it. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think he understood why other guys couldn't couldn't be like that but uh, I, I think pete i think pete rose was that way i don't know if he was was quite the jerk to teammates 
but obviously I think Pete was probably in that vein of, I can't believe nobody plays the game as hard and as, as, as tough as I do. And I think that that competitiveness right or wrong probably is what led to Pete being a gambler and what led Michael to being a gambler. So you think you can beat anything with your hard work and determination. Yeah. Well, and I don't, I certainly don't want to make this a um, LeBron Jordan comparison game, but I do think that competitive nature and that willingness to win at all costs, be a jerk to your teammates as you're trying to lead them and, and pull them along. And you heard his quotes. He said, yeah, I, I pushed those guys and, and I may not have been nice to them, but like I wanted them to experience the stuff with me and experience the joys of winning. He thought that that means the same to everyone else that it means to him. And I think that's what separates him and Kobe. I think him and Kobe are very much the same type of guy, personality yes. leader yeah. in the locker room where they do, could care less if they ever have a friend in the world, a real friend. And I think you saw Jordan, some of that crying that he had. I think that's what some of that was about. Like, maybe he, some of it now he regrets the fact that, like, he and Charles Barkley aren't even friends anymore after being brothers for so long. You know, the fact that he has that in his personality, that he really doesn't care if he keeps anyone close to him, maybe wears on him more as he gets older. And I think that's the one thing that makes him so different from LeBron. And same with Kobe, is that LeBron really can't be that guy. And I think we've seen him try to take steps to be that guy and be that killer in the locker room. And, and I got to make these guys follow my lead. And it doesn't work for him when he's a jerk. I think we've seen things fall apart for him in the locker room. It's just not in his nature. He's a guy that needs to be liked by his teammates. He needs to have fun. And that's how he leads. He leads by saying, I'm the best player in the world. And we can all like each other. I can be a connector here. I think that's when he's been at his best. You saw it with the early years in, in Miami. Um, and then I think when he, when he went back to the Cavs, you saw that kind of spoil as he tried to be a hard ass on Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love, and they didn't take to it at all. Right. Well, I think you also have to be true to your personality. I, I do. I mean, exactly if right. If, if your personality is Michael Jordan's intensity, then live that out. Be that. Don't try to be something you're not. Yep. And I think that's part of what LeBron's had to learn is not to chase Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant as right. their personalities because right. he's not them. You just lead by the example that you set on the court. You're the best player on the court almost every single night. Just go be the best player on the court, and that's fine. Yep. All right, Skinny, it's time for our favorite segment of the podcast, Ask Skinny Anything, where people on my social heavens. media can ask you whatever question they desire, and I will ask it to you. So uh, we'll jump right, into we that go. with some legitimate basketball uh, questions to start. Uh, the best high school basketball player that you've ever seen play in person was who, Skinny? Um, in person, I got three of them. OJ Mayo still had the greatest move I ever saw in my life. And he's not number one. There's, there's three guys I'm going to give you. Uh, but OJ, OJ Mayo, it was a, a buddy of mine and I, we decided his senior year, we were going to go watch North College Hill play three games. We we're going to see him play, um, Oak Hill Academy. Um, they played him in, um, in Riverfront Coliseum, whatever it was called then or is now, whatever. We saw them play, I can't remember, another game against a decent team. And then we wanted to see them against somebody just bad. And no offense to St. Bernard, but we went and watched him go play St. Bernard one night. And he had a move where he came down the left baseline, short of the block, short of the left block, jumped across the lane. I want you to think about this. Now, this is Michael Jordan-like, but when you see this in person in a small gym as close as we were, it and look, I've seen great athletes my whole life as a, as a reporter and as a coach. But, I mean, this was one. So he jumps short of the left block, Rick, goes under the rim, comes out the other side with a reverse layup, and lands about two feet on the other side of the right block. And it, 
I want you to, I'll tell you what, next time you go into a gym, I want you to see if you can just take a running start without a basketball and leap from the left block to the right block. See I if can, you can do it. I can save you that effort. I can't. <laughs> I mean, long jump, was, not in my arsenal. It was the most incredible move I've just ever watched in, in person. So he's up there uh, for sure. Um, I know people are going to laugh at this, but as a high school basketball player, Richie Farmer from Clay County who played at Kentucky was absurdly good. Oscar, uh, I just want to know why Coach Cal can't recruit the white student-athlete. Why Richie Farmer isn't coaching free throws for us? <laughs> Richie going to start tonight, catch by 90. Um, look, he was so – he and Alan, and Alan Houston would be the other one. Um, he and Alan Houston the one year where they went back and forth and Farmer had 51. I've never seen a, a, a guy that size back a guy six inches taller to the foul line and still make a turnaround jump shot over him time and time and time again. Those guys are, are without question um, way up there for me, again, just as high school players. And Alan Houston went on to, to a very good NBA career, and, and uh, certainly O.J. Mayo has gone on to an NBA career. Farmer was never going to be that. But as a high school player, damned if he wasn't awful good. Yeah, I, uh, I did the national AAU scouting circuit like full-time for a handful of years, and I still go out to – you know, a few events each year. So I've gotten to see a lot of the, the top guys over the last, you know, decade now uh, that I've been doing the Xavier site. So there are a lot of names that, uh, that I've seen in person that, that I put up there and they're really good. I mean, Zion's obviously right there at the top. Another guy that recently that would, that I thought was just outstanding as a high school scorer was Jason Tatum. I, I, I thought for sure he was undervalued in that class. And I think as it turned out, he, he was a little bit, even when it came to the NBA draft. Um, but I can only imagine, but not to cut you, cut you off for a second, I can only imagine being at an AAU tournament to watch Zion play in that setting where it's very close proximity, where you realize how much of a freak of an athlete he is, and then to watch him do things probably in more of an open court setting, obviously, than, than, than anything else. That, to me, would have been fascinating to watch. Well, the funny thing is the year before he blew up, like he started blowing up during his high school season, like his junior year. Um, it was like right before that where all of the Instagram videos started going nuts and stuff like that. But the, the year before that on the AAU circuit, he played uh, for a team called Game Elite, which also had Elias Harden, who ended up at Xavier at the time. So right. I was watching Elias Harden a lot and seeing Zion play. He was a young kid playing up on that team. And to be honest with you, he was like a Zion or Zion Williamson. He was like a Draymond Green, but just a little bit more athletic, a little more explosive. Like a, he was a sort of below the rim guy that rebounded, stocky body, he could really pass, he could handle it in the open court. Uh, just great outlet passes. I was like, oh, this this kid's really fun to watch. He's going to be like a top one hundred and fifty type of guy that can you know become sort of like the next Draymond. Maybe be a small ball five in college basketball or something. Great rebounder, right? And then all of a sudden he just went nuts for the next 18 months and became one of the best players I've, I've ever seen. But for me, the number one guy overall is OJ Mayo. I mean, and it, it really – it's not even a hard choice for me either. Really? That's, that's, that's funny that you and I came to the same guy, right? I, I don't think people understand how talented OJ Mayo was. I still believe as a high school player he was an even – I mean, I'm sure, like, if you look at LeBron, just say the fact that he's 6'8", as opposed to being a 6'4", 6'5", point guard. Right. Like, right. you're going to give the edge to LeBron as a prospect. But I'm telling you, like, O.J. Mayo was that ridiculous in terms of his dominance and all the tools that he had, that even as a 6'5", point guard, or 6'4", point guard, whatever he was, I would still put him right there with LeBron as the best high school prospect I've ever seen. Because he was, 
uh, he's the biggest what if for me. Like if if you take away right. the drug issue right. that he had when he got to the NBA, I still believe he could have been one of the best NBA point guards in the history of the game. He was explosive. He could shoot it with range. He could shoot it off the dribble. He had great vision. I mean, it, he was he was just one of the best players I've ever seen. I mean, I know we saw the game against Highlands um, at NKU where, uh, where he just put on a show and basically was a one-man press for three plays and dunked three times in a matter of like 10 seconds. Um, but back in seventh grade, when I was at the AAU Nationals at Virginia Beach, he was playing on another court. And it was like a little, uh, little Christian church gym where they're playing kind of the early rounds of right. the, yes. the pool yeah. play yep. for this yep. event. And so P- the wooden court, backboards or no, no, but it was the, the close enough. Yeah. I don't, they were the hard stuff that wasn't clear, but it wasn't right. wooden. Okay. I don't know what okay. you call gotcha. those. Um, but he was, he was, it was before social media, but he had still created a national buzz where people knew like, Oh, this is kind of like the next guy. And uh, he might've even been in like a slam magazine or an ESPN magazine at that point. Yeah. I mean, he was playing, he was playing high school at Fairview down in Ashland as a seventh grader. So yeah, that's probably right. Right. And that's, this is right around that whole time. And so he, uh, it, it, all of a sudden this little Christian church that has like two sets of bleachers that could fit about 30 people on him total has like 300, 400 people crowding around inside the gym tiptoeing the out-of-bounds line, refs pushing them back so they can inbound the ball to try to watch the seventh-grade kid play. And he just knows it, and he's, like, living up to the moment. And to start the game, he has, like, he has one play where he, he gets a steal in transition. He goes up like he's going to dunk, and that's what everyone's there to see is a seventh-grader dunk. And he goes and he just finger-rolls it instead of dunking it, and the whole crowd just like, oh. And then a few plays later, one of his buddy gets it, throws it up ahead to him, same thing. He goes up like he's going to dunk it, and then he just lays it off the glass and in. And then later – he gets a steal like in the in the backcourt with two defenders already back. He comes down the middle of the lane, splits them, and dunks on the second one as a seventh grader. Oh, and I can do. I mean, I've yeah. never seen a gym go crazier than those three hundred people in that little Baptist church or whatever it was. I, I want people to know this, and you can, you you have to back me up on this. There's about a twenty five year difference between you and I age wise. We 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 don't go over these topics before the show. We certainly don't go over these questions because I love being surprised, and it's completely hilarious to me that we came to the conclusion of the same guy. Yeah, well, I'm I'm a little shocked that you chose AJ, AJ Mayo too. Like, I did not expect you to say that. That 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 is almost comedic. It, it's funny you talk about the seventh grader. I I, I remember with the I guess it was the it was eighth grade year, um, summer between eighth and ninth grade. We were we were playing in the King James, a team my AAU team I coached, and we somehow we we had a great run. We got to the quarterfinals of that thing, um, and against teams that were way better than we were. I mean, we we won a Division II championship, but we were playing against Division One high high level recruits. We were playing a team from Sacramento, and it had Sharif Abdul Rahim's son on it. And uh, again, this is one year past Mayo, but I had a pretty good player. He's a he's name's Bryson Huddleston. He is a football player. He's going to Eastern Michigan, and he was our best defender. So I put him on the kid. First time down the floor, the kid strokes a three in his face with the hand right in his face. I thought, okay, pretty good player. Next time down the floor, he crosses my man over, comes baseline, and does kind of one of those sideways dunks coming down the baseline. And I'm like, man, this is an eighth grader doing this kind of stuff. Um, and I, I think if I looked, he was a he might have been a top 25, top 30 are, recruit. Last are you talking about Sharif Abdurrahim's son? Yes. Yeah, Jabri. He's, he's like top 50. He's going to Virginia. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's the kid. Yeah, he's um, a that, he's really I mean, to, to watch that kid as an eighth grader, I mean, we only lost the game by four. So I, I couldn't have been prouder of how we played against them. Cause he, he's one of those kids where you always think you have an answer, right? Defensively or something. I, I'm almost like, 
I'll tell you what. Just, Sorry, guys. He, he doesn't get to the rim, and other than that, if somebody else makes shots, that's fine. I mean, I don't know what else we can do to stop this kid. He was that good. Um, and and it, that's kind of O.J. Mayo-like. When you, when you watch an eighth grader, when they can get the rim, it's an exciting thing. When they can come sideways down a baseline and throw, throw one down, you're like, this is a whole nother level, man. Yeah, and then he still had all the skill to go with it. And like correct. IQ, yes, he knew correct. how to play. And it, he, he wasn't just a freak athlete. That's, um, that's insane. All right, a little ridiculousness from our sports department. Who would <laughs> win in a cage match between Chris Rankle and Jed Demusi? Mm. I think there's some things you have to consider here. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. The thing, about, the thing is, I don't know Rankle as well as I know Jed. The thing I, I'm going to go with Jed only because I don't think Jed would ever tap out. I, I don't know enough about Rankle to know whether Rankle would tap out or not. And Rankle, that's a tough one for me. I think Jed gets him a little bit on reach. Yeah. Yeah. Jed's a taller guy, but if you look, I mean, if you look at the two, Rankle's clearly in better shape. He's yeah, younger, he's got a, little, a little younger. Definitely younger. Has got more energy, more juice to him, more explosion still, more hip flex for sure. Jed, there's both no North, way Jed can both, bend down anymore. Both, both Northeast Ohio guys. I mean, two tough guys from Northeast Ohio. Right, from right? the grit belt, so a lot yep. of toughness. Yep. Um, I, you know, if you look at the two, you think Rankle has the upper hand. He looked like he could maybe still get in. Like it, he, he probably at some point, Chris Rankle, with all the stand-ups I've seen him do, he's going to put on helmets and a shoulder pad and, and like practice with a high school team. Like that's the type of guy he is. He looks like he can still do it. He's got enough uh, stockiness to him to handle Jed's size. Like you would look at him and say he's the favorite. If, if Vegas was putting odds on the fight, he'd probably be like minus two fifty. But Here's the thing that I think you, you got to think about Jed and why I'd give Jed the edge. Jed's a dad now. Jed has dad strength. What is dad strength? You've never heard of dad strength? Never heard of dad strength. Maybe it's because I had daughters. No, I mean, it doesn't matter. Once you become a dad, you just become like, you know how like dads can be totally out of shape. They're like 50 something years old and you, you're out there doing some type of lawn work or something. You need help. And all of a sudden they can, whatever you were trying to do that you couldn't, they just can easily do. Oh, They're okay. easily that, strong that, enough that, to manhandle something. Yeah. And that, That's me and this family. Although I, I got to give my, my, my daughter credit. She was, she's moving some things around in her room, and uh, she took a, a TV from my oldest daughter. Um, she was changing some stuff out at her house that, that she just bought. And so she had her old TV. It was an old princess TV, believe it or not. Big thing with, with, an old, with a VHS. It's so old it had a VHS player in nice. the front of it, right? A little combo deal. So she, she got out of her room to the top of the steps and we we're going to take it to the garage. And she yells at me, I'm back here doing some work. And she said, dad, can, can you take this TV downstairs? I said, yeah, give me about five minutes. I'll, I'll do it. And then she goes, yeah, you know what? I got it. So she took credit. She gets it. She comes up the stairs and she comes down the hall and she goes, I don't need no mans and walked away. I went, all right, you don't need no mans. You don't need no mans. Good, good for you, little guy. Yeah. Good for her. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going with Jed because of the dad strength, though. It's very real. Dad strength. I just don't real. think I don't. I just don't think Jed, Jed would tap out. I think Wrinkle. If Wrinkle got like a nick on his face, I think he'd tap out. I don't. You think, think he's he that pretty? Yeah, yeah. I don't know about I, that. Yeah, I think so. All right, Wrinkle. Tell me you wouldn't tap out when you listen to this. Tell me you wouldn't tap out. All I right. know Jed would. I know Jed wouldn't tap out. That is true. Jed's not a tap guy. He's he's crazy. He watches the WWE. He, you know what? He'd fight for love and honor. Yeah. Well, and that's the, another reason that that's on the negative side for him is he went to Miami. So uh, yeah, Oxford doesn't exactly. exactly scream toughness. Uh, with some talk of baseball coming back in July, Skinny, what, uh, what is your Reds opening day lineup under the assumption that the Visions will be regional and there will be a league-wide designated hitter? All right, let's go with – let's go with – man, this is a tough one for me. Let's go with 
Shogo Akiyama in right. And batting leadoff. And batting leadoff. Let's go Winker batting second oh. and playing left. Okay. Let's go Suarez. No, let's go Castellanos hitting third dh and Suarez batting fourth at third. Mustakas batting fifth. And I'm doing this against a right-handed pitcher, by the way. Okay. Mustaka, it would change definitely for a left-hander. Mustakas batting fifth at second. Let's go Votto hitting sixth at first. Senzel hitting seventh in center. Barnhart hitting eighth and catching. And Galvis batting ninth and playing shortstop. All right. Interesting. Um, I would have gone got? Akiyama batting leadoff and in center field. I would have gone Votto at first base batting second. I would go Suarez batting third, playing third. I would go Mustakis batting cleanup, playing second. I would go Castellanos batting fifth, playing left. I would go the platoon of Senzel Winker. So you'd have, you'd, so you, so you'd have, you'd have Castellanos being a position player. Yeah. All right, I got him DHing. I'd have him in left with Senzel and Winker as a platoon in right. I'd have Aquino as my DH batting seventh. Wow. I'd have Galvis at shortstop batting eighth, and I'd have Barnhart as the catcher batting ninth. Here's the thing about Aquino. You got to know if you have something or not. Like, you, you have a shortened season here. Why still yeah, around? He's an, just throw yeah, he's an interesting. I, I, you actually have anything with this guy or if you just need to move on. Now, I will say this. With, with, the, with the fact that there is the DH, I think it benefits the Reds greatly because of that outfield situation. And you can almost go, Rick, you could almost go straight platoon. If there's a lefty, you could go uh, Aquino in right, uh, Senzel in center, uh, Philip Irvin in left as Castellanos is the DH. Right. And against righties, you can kind of do the platoon you just talked about. I mean, you could almost go straight platoon in the outfield. Yeah, you could. And uh, I agree. The DH is a great thing for this year's Reds team because they have guys they need to look at in the outfield and see what they have and get more more position players on the field than spots well, they have currently. So, And the other part is you got a couple of guys that, look, Castellanos is not known for his glove. Winker's not known for his glove and his defense. And you can even hide those guys if you had to at, at the DH spot. Right. Yeah. All right, back to uh, some food action. We got multiple food questions coming up here. Oh, boy. So, uh, okay. Your top five pizza places in the tri-state. Mm. Um, I, I'll, st- I'll start you off. My top one is Goodfellas. There's no question. That, that's number one with a bullet. No. That's, my, that's my favorite by far. Have you ever had Noche's in Edgewood? I have not. Where is that? It's, uh, the, you know, Edgewood Tavern, like the little barn, Barnwood yes, Drive? Right. Thing. Yeah, it's right in there it's next to the edgewood tavern i'll be darned um it's uh no free advertisements but it's very good i would have them at number two personally it's very similar to goodfellas it's a good yeah. new york slice my, my my second would be bourbon house bourbon um, house is good i'd probably have really, that in my top five bourbon house is like if you want to basically a slice is enough maybe a half of a second slice it is so thick but it's so yeah, stinking good it's stuffed pizza but not in not like chicago style like actually stuffed like there's two yes. layers of crust right it's 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 really good it's so they they it's it's one of my favorites um for sure see and then unfortunately I, i'm i'm one of those i like those those places like the one you're talking about but our family is so la rosa's oriented and i like la rosa's it serves its purpose but for me anymore, I'm, 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 it's a calzone. I don't even eat the pizza. I've gotten to the point where I just have had enough. Um, yeah, I'd probably throw La Rosa's in my top five for Cincinnati yeah, just because yes. you kind of have to, and I do eat it a lot. I still like it. See, I swear to God, you're going to laugh at this. I love Pizza Hut. Nobody else in my family loves pizza. I love Pizza Hut pizza. Eh, I mean, it's okay. I'll eat, look, uh, all the 
the the negative comments that we get about chain pizza like on social media is one of the most annoying things about social media it's like come on people like you're turning down a slice of pizza hut or papa john's or domino's if someone's offering it to you right now there's zero chance you are you're gonna eat that slice unless you're just a health freak so like yeah of course yeah we'd prefer a better new york slice from some gourmet place like everyone agrees with that but like sometimes you're just gonna spend six dollars on a meal you can get in 10 minutes and be done with it go with the best deal you know what i mean and like they're fine they're they're good that's better than frozen pizza I used to, um, and I haven't had it in forever, and I probably should. As a kid, when I lived uh, for a couple of years in Florence, uh, we would always get uh, Papadinos. And I love Papadinos. Papadinos is good. Um, yep. It, it kind of reminds me along the same lines of uh, what used to be Donato's in Erlanger's is now, um, oh, what do they call the place now there on Dixie Highway? Oh, those are the Salvadores? Salvadores, yes. Yeah, uh, the other one Donato's. too, and I, I got to give a, I got to give a, give I'm, a plug. I'm, I'm, excuse me, Pasquale's, not Donato's. Oh, Pasquale's. Yeah, okay, Pasquale's, yeah, okay. No, and I got to give a plug, and I love it, and, and I totally remember this. I would go Goodfellas 1, the place I'm about to say to, Camp Rosa in Fort Mitchell. It's oven-baked. It's ridiculously good, in my opinion. Ridiculously yeah. good. I, I would go um, Adriatico's probably in my top. I love Adriatico's. That's a great call too. Yeah, I'd probably have them like three or four. I'd probably that, have That's about three. I'd do three. three. Or four. And then I'd have La Rosa's five. Okay. I, I think you and I are on the same page. Goodfellas to me, though, is it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long distance between one and two. Oh, I totally – well, and I'll be honest. Noche's is like a, a very similar to Goodfellas. So I think you would like Noche's very, very much too. But those are my two favorites without a doubt. I've got to give you a quick pizza story here. Um, as a kid, I lived there a couple of years in Peekskill, New York. And whenever we would drive to the city – um, we would go past this little town called Terrytown and they had this pizza place kind of in a strip mall. This is in the early, early seventies when there wasn't a lot of strip mall action, right? I mean, strip malls weren't a, a huge thing, but it was a little strip mall and it was New York style pizza. Obviously it literally was one of those things as a kid, you're like, every time you go by, you talk your parents into taking you there. So a couple years ago, I was covering a Monday night game in New York and had all day Monday to, to go I would decide I'm going to go drive back to my, my town. I had never, I hadn't been back there since I was nine and 10 years old to try to find the, the two places that I lived in my old elementary schools and all that stuff. As I drove by, I'm like, there's no way that pizza joints there. Lo and behold, brother, there it was. Went and got me a couple slices. Oh my goodness. I, 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 I got to, I, I don't remember the name of the place. I just remember the strip mall. And I just remember going in and going, that's the place. This is it. And it was, it was called Sabaro. It's not called Sabaro's smart ass. Those are, those are not in strip malls. Those are only in malls. <laughs> My bad. Um, yeah, there's like this. Did you ever have um, the, the square pizzas at school? Or was those like. Oh, I loved them. I love those. Yeah, Dude, the, I love those. The, those are the best, like the old nostalgia school lunches. Like if you got one of those right now, you'd love it. I love I lo- that, that. They had that uh, helping of corn and you were good to go. That's all you needed. Pizza and corn. Who, who, what else is there? Uh, another uh, pizza question here from Twitter: New York or Chicago style pizza? I'm going to say both. I, I I can't say I prefer one over the other. Oh really? Um, yeah, New I York like style New York to me. Better. Like I said, totally different. Yeah, the, like I said, that place in in New York I went to obviously is New York style, and it's just it's so it's just so good, almost like melts in your mouth. As opposed to Chicago style, you got to fight it a little bit, right? Because the yeah, it's a pie. A, yeah, you get you get a forkful of it, and stuff's falling off the fork, and you're trying to make sure you get all the toppings on one forkful, and you got to eat it with a fork. New York style, man, you can fold it, you can put two pieces together and shove it in your mouth. Um, yeah, yeah, 
I'm indifferent. I'm sorry for the answer on that. I'm indifferent. Both are good to me. I, I like them both, but Chicago style pizza, they're two like different genres to me. Like Chicago yes, style yeah. pizza is a casserole, a pizza casserole. Yes, and no, it is. It really is. New York it's style pizza right. is what I think of as actual pizza. So Agreed. I like Agreed. both. Uh, they're both yeah. very good. Uh, favorite hot dog toppings, which I thought was a weird question, but I'll go with it. Yeah, I, 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 I like to put a bunch of stuff on it. I'll, I'll go, uh, believe it or not, I'll take a, a big um, dill pickle spear. Cut that in half, put it on both You're sides of the like hot dog. Straight up Chicago style here. A little, a little bit. I don't do the celery salt per se. Um, some onion, some mustard, and that's about that's about right for me. No usually the, the mustard. Usually the mustard. Now no relish. Usually the mustard though. I like to mix a little hot sauce with the mustard and kind of make a little concoction. Oh, and put that okay. on there. I like that because then then the pickle cools off the heat. The onion gives a little sweet. It's it's. I'm telling you, it's pretty good. And I'll tell you, I, I don't do it very often. I was watching a cooking show. I don't know, ten years ago. Try to fry a hot dog sometime. There's a lot of splatter involved, but man, that, that dude is pretty damn good. <laughs> that dude is pretty damn good. I, 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 hot dog's another thing that gets a bad rap on social media. No question. I know it is kind of gross what they're made out of. I'm well aware, but I, I can eat a hot dog. Like I can eat a hot dog. A random lunch. It's not, and I just go ketchup and mustard. Both. I see. I can't, I can't, I can't put, I can't put ketchup on. I know people love ketchup on hot dogs. I can't do it. Do you I not just, like ketchup period or just not on? I like it. Yeah. Ketchup. The only thing I put ketchup on is fries. That's okay. literally the only thing I can't do. I can't do it on a burger. Um, I can't do it on a hot dog. Nah, I don't know why that is, but yeah. I'd argue, argue my favorite thing for ketchup is a hot dog. Really? Yeah. It's very amateurish of you. Okay. Fair enough. Um, that's uh, actually the end of our questions here, but I, we did have an update on i got some good news and some bad news about something we brought up on the last show do you want the good okay. news first or the bad news first no i'll take the bad news and then we'll go with the good that's a good way to end all right the bad news is we are not going to be ta- able to talk about and give you updates on our newfound favorite semi-professional basketball team the taiwan beer it's funny i tried to look playing. i tried to look them up this morning yeah i tried to look them up this morning and couldn't find anything on them you know what the I'm good glad news. you brought that up because i almost forgot about that i'm glad you brought that part up so what, what so they're not playing no, they are not playing, but do you know what the good All news right. is? They're going to play. We are the fans of the championship winning Taiwan beer. How was that part? They won? They won it all, Skinny, before we could even get to being fans of them. They won it like two weeks ago. They're, I tried I to look even... up their stats, and they had won the championship already. All right, so. But we, so that, we... Just choose, that just shows we are fans of winners. Apparently, we're front runners, apparently, yeah. what we are. Huh. So, so I guess what we're going to have to do then is if – if sports of what do you know when they come back to playing uh you know what my knowledge of the semi-professional korean basketball league is I know. not it's, that up to snuff so i'll have to get back to you on that i think it's i think it's the taiwanese basketball league because it oh, is the yeah, taiwan beer yeah, yeah okay. no i think well maybe i don't know <laughs> yeah but anyway um I, i'm gonna try to find that out by next week i'm glad you brought that up because i actually had written it down and i don't have my notes here of what i wanted to bring up at the end of the podcast and i wanted to bring up the taiwan beer very yeah well they, they play in the uh the ttl uh, you're right. That is something to do with Taiwan uh, League. Taiwan uh, top. Taiwan top league. Yeah, but shout out to our guys: Kentrell Barkley, Sung Han Hang, Igor Zaitsev. Oh, he's good. Yuan Chang and the man on the wing, averaging six point three points and three point six rebounds. Number twenty-seven in your programs, but number one in your hearts. Hey, G Wang. Hey, G. Wang, I believe, was voted glue guy of the year in that league. Oh, he's our guy. I mean, you just got to love the he's way our he guy. sacrifices for his team. Doesn't care about stats. They don't show it, but he takes two charges a game. And our, and our guy, Chun San Chu, at the head coach, has done a great job of uh, getting the boys 
into shape. I, so. I love his drills. I have incorporated many of his drills into what <laughs> I do as a coach. Yeah, I saw uh, – hey, we finished the year 25-7, and seven, beating out Pion, Yulon Luxgen, Bank of Taiwan. The Bank of Taiwan, people were expecting better of them this year. I think they were picked to finish second originally. And well, they tried, to get Patino, they tried to get Patino to coach, and he said, no, I'm going back to the States. Yeah, and then uh, Jutai Technology uh, came in fifth there. So They cheat. They've been known to, they've been known to hack teams. Stuff, uh, so. But it wasn't enough to overcome the Taiwan beer. So <laughs> Why should it be? They're the, they're the Taiwan beer, man. They're the legends of Taiwan. Nope. Shout out to our guys. Great stuff. All right, Rick, I appreciate it. As always, we'll, uh, we'll talk again next week, all right? All right, I'll try to get some championship hats and t-shirts. All right, hopefully we can get those. For Rich Boring, I'm Richard Skinner. Thanks for being with us. It's been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly poker edition.